Golden Spiral Media presents Dark Matter, a fan podcast dedicated to Extant on CBS. Each week, Mike and Dave explore the mysteries, characters, and drama that unfold on Extant, and they want to hear from you too. Send in your thoughts by calling 304-837-2278 or visiting goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback. Now, here are your hosts, Mike and Dave. Hello, we're glad you could join us for this installment of Dark Matter, an extant podcast. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is show number seven, where we'll be talking about season one, episodes seven and eight of the CBS summer event series, Extant. These episodes are respectively entitled More in Heaven and Earth and Incursion, and they aired together on August 20th, 2014. And this first episode was written by Vanessa Ryson and directed by Christine Moore. And the second half was written by Gavin Johansson and directed by Paul McCrane. Although, to be honest, it actually felt like one episode in fact we were having trouble figuring out where one ended and the next began yeah i mean very movie like yeah cinematic and uh the episode title i thought was interesting for the first one uh more in heaven and earth and of course kern quotes that hamlet line it's not exact quote the actual line is there are more things in heaven and earth horatio than are dreamt of in your philosophy but That's obviously referring to the fact that most people on Earth are ignorant of the things that are going on up there in space. Right. And we're certainly being exposed to a lot of different philosophies in this show. And it's really all coming to the forefront now, whether it's, uh, you know, what's the meaning of life? What does it mean to be human? What right do we have to play God? All of these things. And of course, Kern changing his philosophy altogether, which is a central uh, point of these two episodes. But before we get into our episode discussion, just want to mention uh, very briefly, because obviously we have a lot to talk about tonight with uh, two episodes to discuss, but we had some fun on the live tweet as usual. Uh, It's getting a little bit easier to decipher all the tweets flying by and a couple cool facts that came out about Pierce Gagnon, who plays Ethan. He obviously had a Japanese tutor for this episode, and he was talking about that. And Mickey Fisher even told us that Pierce pitched the idea of Ethan riding a bicycle to the writer's room, and that's how it ended up in the episode. And I think that's pretty central, so good inspiration coming from the young one for the writers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, ratings this week, you know, they seem to be plateauing at around five and a half million viewers. And I'm wondering how many people actually knew it was a two-hour episode. Yeah, even on Twitter, I think some people started tweeting and like, wait a minute, I'm only five minutes in. Why? I feel like I missed a whole episode. Well, you kind of (laughs) did. Yeah, because the second half won its time slot with more overall viewers than the first half, which usually it's the other way around in in this kind of a scenario. And there was also a lower demo rating of 0.9 compared to the first halves of 1.0. So regardless, it, it, (laughs) it did what it's been doing. Yeah, it's holding steady, and now it's really a question of, is that going to be enough? And we'll have to wait and see. I think that this two episodes at a time thing, uh, which I thought was going to be a detriment, is turning out to be good. 
really liked it. And obviously this was very fast paced and exciting and cinematic, like we said. And I think the general mood on Twitter, at least, which I think is a pretty good representation of the mood at large, was that this was a, oh my God, type of two hour event. Yeah. And, you know, I've gone on record many times commenting on my own lack of an attention span to the reason I don't, I don't watch many movies anymore. And I think certainly the mark here was this thing flew by for me. Yeah. Unfortunately, both episodes had the same general outline for us to discuss. So it will really be like we're discussing uh, two episodes. Uh, But let's go ahead and get into our episode discussion and talk about how we're going to break this down. Well, we'll talk about the opening scene, of course, and, and I've got a few things to say there, but, but it basically breaks down into Ethan's transformation and all the improvements that he's been making. You know, again, that's sort of the question, how is it happening? Uh, Molly's quest for the truth here. And then we've got a few little things like uh, Kern's theology, and, and certainly we learn uh, not to anybody's surprise that Odin had something <laughs> up his sleeve. That's right. But yeah, let's start with that opening scene where we actually get a flashback and uh, we're not used to seeing those except to Seraphim Station as the entity actually impregnated Molly. And so this opening scene where she's on the Seraphim apparently is kind of deceptive. And obviously that's what they were going for. Yeah, because I'll tell you, I felt like I was being manipulated and like (laughs) really a test and then all of a sudden, here comes Sparks with a guy that we then learn is mission specialist Derek Pierce, and he's got the news about the accident on the Aruna, and it's like, wow, how well that scene was done. Yeah, it felt tragic. It felt on the moment. I mean, Sparks' reaction was still stunned disbelief. Well, did he know exactly what Katie was getting into? He certainly knew what Molly was getting into later. Well, see, and that's what we still don't know at this point. We don't know how far back it goes. Yeah, is this the first encounter? We're not sure. Right, right. And I'm a little still, even having seen the episode twice, Molly's reaction and her words to Sparks, uh, I don't know. It, it, it just, for somebody that was supposed to be like a daughter to him, I, I guess I thought it would have almost been a little bit more emotional, but. You know, on the other hand, I I look at it and maybe I'm stereotyping that these are all scientists and, you know, that, that, you know, maybe that just by the nature of the kind of people they are, that they're, they are not emotional because if they were, uh, she wouldn't have been able to put out the test fire in, in the quick amount of time that she did. Right. Well, I think it does reinforce that Molly and Sparks did have a relationship, and and it's easy to forget that because just in the last couple of episodes is when Sparks has really started to make some extreme choices. And we talked about last week how the, the Kern and Sparks characteristics have sort of flipped. Right. And that certainly was even more emphasized in this episode as well. Right. Now, speaking about flipped, you know, I find myself really trusting Sam and I'm not sure I should. You know, I, I feel like she's on Molly's side, but I'm not totally buying into it. But obviously also in this opening scene, Molly meets with Sam, shows her the Aruna video with Katie Sparks, and, and her uh, goal is to find the baby. And on the one hand, it's almost hubris 
that, you know, I want Sparks to know I'm here. I want him to sweat. And it's like, really? Yeah, she's overly confident that she's going to be able to get this proof from Derek Pierce. And obviously she's remembering that Derek Pierce was part of this as the mission specialist. So maybe he knows something that she can use against Sparks. I'm not sure what leverage she thinks she has uh, for Derek Pierce to actually give that information up, but she wants Sam to go through the Aruna Cruz medical history looking for anomalies, and maybe she thinks that can sort of add to the evidence pile as well. Well, but even I don't care how much evidence you have. I mean, a conspiracy that runs this deep, you know, it didn't get to that point by playing softball. Right. Even if you confront them with it and you actually have the evidence, doesn't mean they can't just get rid of you and get rid of the evidence. Right, right. Now, you already mentioned about Kern and Sparks kind of flipping. And, you know, Kern in this opening scene gives Sparks the impression that he's taken Krieger out. Yeah, this is the beginning. Right, that he's dead and that he's got a strong lead on the Aruna file, which obviously we know is not true. Well, no, actually it is true. He does know where it is. He, th- he thinks it's a, a strong lead when he's saying it to Sparks. Oh, I've got a strong lead on where it might be, but he's actually referring to the fact that he's got Krieger right there and is going to start pressuring him. Right. Now, you know, I got to tell you, uh, I'm not sure which storyline is more intriguing. Uh, you know, I, I think to a certain extent, I'm really captivated by Ethan's story. And, you know, this first day it's, uh, he's back at school and he really only attended school one day, right? Yeah. And he's anxious to get back or perhaps a little nervous about going back. Yeah, which is obviously understandable. And he overhears the two girls speaking Japanese. And I, I thought it was kind of cool. You know, the one my father promised to get me one as soon as they become, you know, mass marketable and all of that. Because, you know, that's exactly what the reaction would be. And so far, we've seen very little evidence other than Molly and John and Julie, I guess, that anyone would treat these androids like real people. Right. They're just gadgets like an iPhone. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, you know, obviously we're kind of shocked, maybe not as much as John, but, but when Ethan responds and then John asks him how he learned, he says he doesn't know. And I think that's one of the fundamental questions we, we come out of this episode asking, does Ethan tell John the truth when he says he doesn't know? I think it's true. Do you, okay. do you trust that statement? I'm not sure, but I'm not ready to say I believe him. I think what we're seeing here is a convergence of the two plot lines, and we're not quite at the juncture yet. Okay. But the closer and closer we get to figuring out the mystery of the uh, offspring, and I'm so glad we have a name for it now, by the way, (laughs) the closer we get to solving that mystery, I think we're also going to become closer to solving the Ethan mystery as well, because they might be one and the same. Well, I mean, certainly they're going to converge if they are not already beginning to. But, uh, (laughs) you know, the more I see Charlie... The less I like Charlie. Oh, I'm I am so opposite to you. I love him. <laughs> oh, I, you know it, it's I don't know, but anyway. So we're at the lab. John tells Julie and Charlie about Ethan's Japanese, and and you know that whole relationship between John and Julie really takes a few twists and turns in this episode, and certainly not for the better. So so there's really you know I'm not I'm not using them in my prediction tonight, but I considered it. Oh, really? Just in terms of what's gone on in the past or? Well, I think what's gone on in the past and what's gone on. I mean, you know, there's still more there. There's a lot of tension there. And, you know, she's still not over uh, the trust issues and I don't blame her. 
Yeah, and I think it's chalked up to past feelings that she's had, and then he just knows about it. But you think there might even be more than that? Uh, I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, now you know the idea about when Charlie brings up that maybe what he's doing is breaking everything down into code, which clearly makes sense for for language, right? For Japanese. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe even for every. I mean, how did he learn how to ride a bike? Well. I guess I can see it more for language than I can for bike riding. Okay. But but yeah, I see what you're saying. He's learning it based on uh, the same principles that he used to break the code on the Arunophile. Right, right. I mean, you know, how does he learn to do it? You know, how did he learn how to skip a rock? He watched his grandfather do it once. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. And I was going to bring this up later, but I guess I can, <laughs> this is as good a time as any. Whether it's Japanese or riding bikes... I'm kind of confused as to why Ethan is displaying this because I thought he had learned a lesson through skipping the stones and his grandfather saying nobody's perfect. And then he didn't make that ring game so that his grandfather could win the money. Right. So now he's displaying all these superhuman feats where he's not acting human enough. And I thought he had learned that lesson already. And I think that really goes back to the idea that I think his shutdown had some other effects on him right. besides uh like maybe he unlearned that maybe that was that part wasn't rebuilt when he when he uh had to reconfigure himself right they were really in virgin territory and they even mentioned that he might have to completely rebuild himself and they weren't sure what he would know who he would know who you know and all of that so i think we were even kind of surprised that he did still have the personal connections that he had when he you know, before the short, short circuit. Right. So I'm thinking this might be evidence that he did lose a little bit because he certainly lost the lesson of in order to act human, you can't have these superpowers. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, again, talking about characters that are, are, are flipping, you know, I mean, you know, back at the beginning of the series when, you know, John is giving his impassioned plea before the board of Yasumoto Corp and he doesn't seem to understand why a fail safe would be needed. You know, and now while Charlie is exhilarated by what he sees in Ethan, John's terrified and rightly so. Yeah, he actually is realizing that this could be something that will be dangerous to Ethan if he exhibit this this unusual behavior that is seen as not normal because different equals bring out the pitchforks and the torches, right? Exactly. You can't help but recollect the Frankenstein myth. And I don't understand how so many highly intelligent people can't see the danger here. Yeah, but you're right. John is the one that hasn't been seeing it, and now he does? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting because he's not talking about shutting off his learning, just slowing it down. Yeah, putting a governor or or something that would hobble his accelerated pace of his learning. Right, because they talk about you know, the, the idea was he was programmed to learn like a normal child. Well, clearly he's not, you know, clearly he's beyond that. So, you know, their programming has a glitch. Right. And, and you hearken back to the first episode, the robot uprising, he kind of joked about it. And we've been mentioning Skynet all along. Well, John clearly sees that that could actually happen (laughs) in this case. And, and oddly now it's the people around him that don't see the danger. Yeah. Now, I thought Molly was going to be mad that she was going to have to make dinner for Yasumoto, but uh, no, <laughs> no, they went to the Yasumoto's for dinner. Uh, nice touch that Femi Dodds there. And, and again, even at that point, we're not sure because it seems like in every situation, 
she says something in conflict to what John and Yasumoto are agreeing on. And here, you know, obviously they wanted to find out what's the deal with Ethan and, and that nice little scene where uh, Ethan and Yasumoto are talking into Jap- Japanese to each other. I mean, really Yasumoto's explaining some things to him, but Ethan clearly understands. Right. And you might just think, okay, he just wants to see this Japanese speaking for himself. But there's a couple things that come out of this. Uh, first of all, let me back up a little bit and talk about how John, before they go to Yasumoto's dinner, is asking, did you read a Japanese book or did you get a translation app or something like that? And Ethan actually brings up the conversation that he had with his mother that I knew was going to come into play. And that's when he was talking about the dream. Molly said that it comes from the secret part of you, which is the subconscious. Well, he has interpreted the secret part of him as the origin of these special abilities. Maybe it came from the part that belongs only to me. Now, John has no idea what he's talking about, but here again, we have Ethan interpreting things in his own way. And I bring that up because you just mentioned the conversation between Ethan and Yasumoto about the dinosaur bones. Right. And did you notice Yasumoto said something to the effect of, everything is not as it seems. Ethan says the bones are very old. And I'm starting to wonder if that's something to do with his age. Like maybe he's actually quite old (laughs) and he just doesn't look very old. Something like that. Like if there was a hidden meaning in there, am I, am I off my rocker? Well, I don't think so. I mean, (laughs) again, he talks about the substance he's using to stay alive, that he's running out of it. So, you know, we don't know how long he's been doing this. What if he's like 80? And he just looks 65 or however what he is, 62. Yeah. Somewhere yeah. in that range. Yeah. But um, again, even what, what also comes out here is, you know, at the conversation at the dinner table that, you know, that whole theory that once we map the neural pathways of the brain and we know where they're headed here, yeah, that it's conceivable that a human brain could be uploaded and installed into a humanic, thereby ensuring immortality. And we know, obviously, that's what he wants although i'm not i guess i didn't think of it in these terms but and john doesn't know that yasumoto is sick nor right. does molly so he's just thinking yasumoto is speaking theoretically but it's just so funny because we brought that up in our episode zero that yasumoto might want to uh put his brain into an android body based on what some things we saw on facebook and it's not something that john feels is ethically uh doable And what's interesting is that you mentioned that Molly actually starts to argue about it a little bit, but Femi Dodd, kind of as a foreshadowing to her surprise (laughs) appearance later, says, just because we can do it doesn't mean we should do it. Yeah. You know what? I had that as my email signature for years. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. Yep. So we didn't realize it at the time, of course, but Femi Dot is showing her true colors in that statement. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because on the one hand, it's not like some of these genre shows where the lines are really blurred as to who the good guys and the bad guys are, because, you know, here it's easy to see her as a bad guy. It's easy to see Odin, you know, which we're going to, uh, we're going to talk about him and Julie in a second, but. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's not something that we have their true motives yet, and we can understand some of what they're going through. But what I don't understand is why Molly is going with this mantra of no risk, no reward. 
Yeah, where did that come from? She said it twice. She said I know. It, she said it with regard to Ethan here at the dinner, and she also said it with regard to what she's going through with Sparks that, oh, oh yeah, um, Pierce is dead. Yeah, but I still have to go after this because no risk, no reward. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you saw him lying in a pool of blood. Okay. I All right, guess. Molly. <laughs> yeah. All right, well... Uh, Julie and Odin have a date, which uh, is technically their first date, because if you think talking to me in a gym counts as a date. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, we find out she lost her legs as a child. And, and I, I think it's interesting. And I think we kind of figured this. And that's how she got involved in the Humanics Project and, and designing AI limbs and things like that. So, exactly. But, but it's clear that Odin is trying to extract information from her. Oh, yeah. He's like, I, I want you to talk more about this boring work stuff that you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I think the interesting thing is she's not some spinster that should be easily manipulated by a man because, you know, I, I mean, I think we get the impression she's gone through a series of one-night stands. So well, in, in that respect, she's experienced. Odin is no slouch. I think there was quite a bit of admiration for him on Twitter. Well, what do you mean? He's a, he's a nice looking guy. Well, absolutely. <laughs> but but she's a, a, a nice looking woman. So I, I think she certainly, when she hooks up, she's not hooking up with unattractive men. Yep. Well, he's pushing all the right buttons. Yeah, exactly. I, I know. <laughs> I, I'm just saying, I don't think, you know, she's easily fooled, which is she in a somewhat weakened state because of you know some of these things that are happening at the lab? I don't, I don't know. Well, meanwhile, she takes him back to her place, and he says, uh, maybe next time. It's like, dude. What the heck? Is it really? just because he's so appalled by the fact that she's actually into... To, I like, he basically was appalled at the conversation when he says, how do you control Ethan? And he holds his hands up almost like he's holding a, a Nintendo controller. Yeah. <laughs> And when she explains enthusiastically that they don't control him at all, he says, so someday he'll have complete free will. And she says, yeah, isn't it great? And so maybe that's why he was turned off enough to not give in to her uh, amorous behavior. Yeah, I guess. I guess. All right. He should. He should have gone in anyway, right? <laughs> all right yeah. Oh, come on. Really? All right. But uh, now... We saw in last week's episode that Ethan seems to have his sleep programmed, right? He was sleeping with uh, Molly. And, 8, you know, 8 a.m. <laughs> right. Eyes pop open. He's apparently woken up off schedule, and he sees the bike, wants to ride it. And we're starting to see, you know, this, this little petulant behavior. Uh, I don't want to say it's necessarily <laughs> childlike because every child doesn't, you know, act like that. But he's starting to get like one of these little spoiled kids that i want what i want and i want it now even though it's the middle of the night let's go out and ride <laughs> right and you know john tries to discipline him i mean not that molly doesn't but you know we, we just see more interaction between john and ethan than we do between molly mm -hmm. now he turns on the charm gets john to ah screw it let's go <laughs> and and you know they ride it out in the night and I want to say it was some foreshadowing when he just rides down the street and all of a sudden disappears. I mean, I do think at some point, and this is still not my prediction though, <laughs> that, that, that he is going to disappear. Yep. He's going to, he's going to go independent for a while. Yes. And, I could see that happening. Right. But 
I don't think anything bad is going to come of it in terms of his own safety. Well, yeah, just like when Ethan uh, in the second episode ends up at the park. Uh, obviously, that's completely innocent. It's just that John is worried because of him showing so much independence. And obviously, he's going to be protective of a child of that age going off on their own like that, especially right. in the current atmosphere that they're that yeah. they're dealing with. All right, now, did you feel like you were back in continuum for the next scene? Liberate. With, uh, <laughs> yeah, Odin speaking before his little small grassroots group. Yeah, well, actually, yeah. more like Theseus, huh? Right. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, the, the, the stepfather. Oh, right, because it's anti-technology. Right, and yeah. uh, prepare ourselves for the battle ahead. There will be violence and casualties. I wonder and- why he thinks that. Are, are, there, are, are they really going to... Well, I assume they're going to be, they are going to use violence. I mean, unfortunately, and and obviously in real life, it just seemed there are so many groups that feel the need to use violence to get their message heard. Well, especially since I didn't catch this on the initial watching, but when I rewatched it for our podcast, they're responsible for the blackouts. Yeah. Remember how I said the blackouts were going to be significant? Right. It wasn't a throwaway comment. No, not at all. Odin's group caused that. Odin thinks those... Blackouts have been completely ineffective, and so we need a reckoning. Yeah. I I don't know. I was really moved by his dialogue explaining how it was that he lost his arm. Yeah, you can understand. Yeah. I mean, fighting from a computer screen in a remote, safe, air-conditioned environment, you know, it's not as if my enemy was meeting me face-to-face and took my arm. Yeah. You know, it it was almost I could accept that. Yeah, I liked his outsourcing uh, comment. Oh, yeah. What was it? When we outsource war to machines, we outsource our humanity to technology. Yeah, almost as if war is what defines us as humans. Yeah, well, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I guess it does to a, a large extent. But of course, then that's when Miss Femi Dodd walks in. Yeah, and, and at this point, we don't know whether she's just a member or its leader. I'm going to go with leader, but... Yeah, and I wonder if she agrees or if it's Odin's decision to hold up that picture of Ethan. This is yeah. the next target. Yeah. And then, of course, it, it's not long after that that we actually get to see some of that danger that perhaps they're feeling in that small group of uh, anti-tech people. And that is John deciding that, yes, he is going to install that governor that he proposed, even against everyone's protestations. He, in fact, leaves Molly a message about it can't get a hold of her because she's off doing her her own thing but when he tries to get into ethan's programming and and by the way his levels are off the charts even though he's supposedly gone back to sleep after his adventure on the bike and john can't get in access denied what do you think of that uh that end of the episode where his eyes just pop open like that oh oh very (laughs) eerie and uh, you, you know, the whole idea about that, that access denied and, you know, his vitals going off the charts. I mean, are, are we led to believe that he's dreaming? No, again? That, that's what I thought. Because when he, before he woke up and saw the bike, his levels were normal. His levels spiked and John looked up and saw that Ethan was there. What are you doing up so early? Right. But then when he supposedly finishes with the bike and goes back to sleep, his levels do not go down. He is not asleep. <laughs> right, right. So I think he's just still learning at that accelerated rate is showing up on the Ethan meter. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. Well, in terms of Molly trying to get to the bottom of what's going on, and really, obviously, the the major focus point of her quest is the baby. 
she decides she needs to go see Derek Pierce first about what happened with the Aruna project. And he, of course, tells her he can't see her. And on the one hand, I was a little surprised she gave up quite as easily as she did. Yeah, that was a little bit anticlimactic when when he just turns her away like that. Right. Now, Sparks tells Sam that the information she gave him about Molly was really helpful, but wants to know why did she want the uh, medical records? And, you know, she says, well, I don't know. Well, next time she wants anything, you run it by me first. And I'm, I'm glad they included that detail because I would have been bothered that Sam was able to just do things willy-nilly so soon after her blackmail was going on. Yeah, you know, I was a little, again, I'm still not sure exactly what to think about that because everybody knows they're being watched, right? So that, you know, on the one hand, I, I, it's almost as if you do whatever you want, you know they're watching, Okay, they know you know they're watching, so maybe they're not really. You know what I'm saying? So I don't. I don't know. Well, Sam's 180 is what bothers me the most. Yeah. Uh, about this episode, and and Sam as a character has been my least favorite throughout, to be honest. Yeah. Now Molly would make a great investigator because it didn't occur to me about where it is that Pierce is living. She does the or she has the computer do uh, the property records search and finds out that the condo or apartment or whatever it is that Pierce is living in, he bought for a dollar. <laughs> yeah. E- even though it was originally sold for 5.2 million six days prior or 10 days prior or whatever it was. And that Claypool Industries is at the bottom of this. And and uh, she does the search for Claypool and finds out that they're a mining and ore company. So it's hush money. And we find out, of course, that Claypool Industries was mining in the same area that the encounter happened with Katie Sparks. So obviously they were involved. What do you think about Claypool Industries? I actually have a theory as to who they might be tied to. Well, I think one of the writers must be a Primus fan. Why is that? <laughs> oh, dude, really? What? Les Claypool? Oh, right. <laughs> bass player in Primus? I mean, seriously, I can't help but think that. But anyway. Well, I think uh, it's a shell corporation for Yasumoto. What do you think of that? <laughs> oh, I, I, I definitely think that. Um, but, you know, we, we hear a little bit more about these mining operations. And, and uh, you know, I know you've got your little bone to pick about the meteor asteroid thing. <laughs> oh, right. They, so, I thought that the meteor goo, which obviously also was tied into this Aruna mission, they were getting the substance from the meteors. And they kept calling them meteors when the Russian lab people were talking about it as opposed to asteroids meteors are what falls to earth so i thought they had harvested it from fallen asteroids <laughs> but apparently they went out there and mined it in space okay now when you, when you say you think claypool is a shell corporation which i certainly think is reasonable are you saying that because the building is unoccupied save for the offspring and there's no there's no address either okay um <laughs> yeah i guess i mean again we're in a future again not unlike what we've seen in, say, Continuum, where you've got, you know, there's this blurred line between the governments and the corporations and who's in charge and that sort of thing. Well, so, if ISEA can cooperate with Yasumoto Corporation, I guess that a third corporation could easily be involved too. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Pierce isn't going to open his door. Fine, I'll contact him by email. I don't know about you. I was a little surprised he responded to her and said that they would meet, unless he was trying to set her up 
that she would end up being killed. Well, I don't know, because I think it had something to do with the fact that he saw the circles and she, he knew she knew a lot. So it may have been bothering him. Maybe he was feeling some guilt. Yeah. See, again, I believe you and I think you're right there, but I guess I think these people, these are all smart people. They understand how deep a conspiracy they're involved in and how dangerous, or maybe they don't realize how dangerous the people are that are at the top. Well, Sparks and Yasumoto seem to be at the heart of it. And maybe if Derek Pierce had not had very many interactions with Sparks, he felt he was safe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, And you're probably right. He felt complacent. <laughs> so. All right. Now, you know, we talked about medical records and Sam tells Molly that she's got the Aruna brain scans and they've apparently been tampered with because everybody's brain scan is exactly the same. Yeah. Clearly a cover up. Right. That they've clearly replaced, we assume, some sort of anomalies that we saw earlier. But uh, only with regard to the alien encounter. Luckily, they didn't touch the tether, whatever that is, the tether records. <laughs> yeah. And Sam found these elevated naphthalene levels, which are characteristic of mining missions, which is how they get on the path of, hey, wait a minute, Claypool Industries is a mining company. Maybe Aruna uh, encountered this stuff out in the asteroid belt or, or wherever they were mining these asteroids. And that's where we start to get a tie-in because why would the ISEA cover up a mining mission when they partner with mining companies all the time. Right. Unless it's the, that they're mining for something that's they're not supposed to be mining for. I mean, may, maybe there's some sort of quarantine, some sort of law, you know, that, that there are certain things you're not supposed to bring back to earth. And Sam thinks whatever they found there must be very valuable. And I'm thinking the yellow goo at that point, but then Molly says not compared to what they found, which is the alien life form itself. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know what to make of that. Um, you know, I, I said before, I, I think Molly's behavior, particularly when it comes to sparks, it's, it's if she sees herself as being bulletproof and yeah. And she does know how dangerous these people are. She's talked to Krieger. Um, she's talked some to Kern though, not obviously to the extent that she will, but I, I just don't get it. Yeah, and neither does John. John wonders yeah. why do we have to keep doing this? It's way too risky, especially if Pierce is dead. Because of course she goes to the meeting, he's already dead. Yeah. And he's probably been pushed. But I'm I'm with John. At this point, you might want to just stop, let them cover it up and move on with your lives. But she says that she wants to see the baby. And if it's out there, I'm gonna find it. And this is where she brings up the no risk, no reward. Yeah, I mean, that, that just when she goes in there and she has the videos of Katie playing on all the monitors in his office, and then she walks in, it's like, wow. That's bold. Yeah, you are not kidding. That's right. almost recklessly bold. <laughs> all right, well, she follows him, and the question I put in the notes, is there anything a beautiful woman can't get? And you know, Oh, you Mal mean at uh, the Yeah, she Claypool goes to Industries. Claypool, <laughs> right? We're closed. There's nobody here. Well, can you let me in anyway? My And- well, obviously, we learn why he lets her in, that that uh, clearly he's been alerted to the fact that she might try to get... I mean, that's the only thing I can figure. Yeah, well, it's weird because he almost doesn't let her in until she begs. Right. So what was the plan other than, I guess, well, he was just playing hard to get. <laughs> well, yeah, right. Not to make it seem obvious. I mean, yeah. If he just lets her right in, then maybe that throws up some sp suspicions on her end. But 
The biggest question is, what the hell did she expect to gain from going to a set of empty offices? Right, right. What, are they going to leave some crucial file lying on the floor? Yeah. Well, right. And and we're certainly wondering, it's like, doesn't it seem odd to her that she's just left alone? Now, granted, he, he said, I've got to get back to my post and, you know, maybe she believes <laughs> that, but. Well, she, but the, all the way up until the SWAT team arrives, she's just kind of looking around aimlessly. Right. Now, obviously the SWAT team comes in, you know, he calls in the code black or whatever it is. And, and Sparks gets the immediate uh, visual on his smartphone and all hell breaks loose. And wow, <laughs> I love how Kern rescues her. Yeah, because, well, first of all, how the heck did he get there ahead of the SWAT team? <laughs> because he had just gotten the call from Sparks while he was having his little tete-a-tete with Krager. So <laughs> he got there awfully quick, but it wasn't just Krager that saved her. It was the birds yeah. that warned her that the SWAT team was coming because the birds fly into the window. She goes over to see why birds are hitting the window, and then they form the circles up in the sky. Yeah, more bird symbology. And I think we certainly get in, in these two episodes that the offspring is making this happen. Yeah, protecting the, its mother. Is that what we're going for? Yeah, I guess. And and there, you know, we've had that uh, little discussion. Is she the host or is she the mother? Yeah, we'll talk about that when, when Krager and Kern are talking. But yeah, I thought I actually was going with Krager's view that she was just a host. Yeah. But yeah. perhaps there is some relationship that the offspring feels for Molly. All right. So now we've got an interesting team that's assembled. Yeah. Krager, Kern, and Molly. And they all view things differently, which I think is part of the beauty of, of their team. So, you know, we'll see how that goes. But we do learn a little bit about Kearns, I'll call it theology. We've thought he was a bad guy. Then we thought he was a good guy. Then we're back to thinking he's a bad guy. I mean, he's got his own torture chamber <laughs> at, at his house, for God's sake. And, and he's he, drug-addled. He's, he's oh looking like gosh. crap. His house is a wreck. <laughs> and of course, mom shows up. You haven't called. I'll tell you, if my mom showed up every time I didn't call her back, <laughs> I'd be getting a lot of visits. Okay. Um, but why is this scene there? Well, it's there because we learn about the connection between Kern's father and him. And Yeah, yeah what an interesting idea that a pilot, a commercial pilot, no less, could possibly have an encounter that's similar to Molly's, not yeah. in space. Yeah, and I mean, I think the interesting thing there is also that you know we talk about close encounters we talk about ufo sightings and you know it seems as if the ones we give the most credence to are the ones that are reported by professional pilots true true you know but in this case he lands a 747 in the middle of a cornfield because uh the voice of god told him to yeah and if that's how he perceived it then obviously people are going to think He's lost it because he's attributing it to God, right? As opposed to some unexplained encounter, right? And then we go back, you know, all these biblical and religious connections. I mean, you know, was Moses hallucinating, or did God really give him the Ten Commandments? Uh, Ooh, you, you know, <laughs> controversial I, I, territory. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it harkens back for me to Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke when, when you know, the overlords come and. You know, they, they make this revelation that all the world's religions can't be right, and they do 
tell which religion is the one true religion. You can read the book if you want to find out which one that is. <laughs> well, so you're saying that Kern has a seed of that in him. and I, I do. And I agree, because when he's talking to Krager, Krager is like the faithless, the atheist of the bunch. Yeah. <laughs> he thinks that, you know, this is just a thing that was using Molly to get to Earth, whereas Kern thinks there's more to it than that. Well, I do. And I think what I like so much about it is, you know, the, the whole idea of that, the conflict between science and religion. And, you know, so many people have that thought process that a scientist, by definition, has to be an atheist. Well, I mean, how can a scientist believe in God? Because it, it just uh, relies on faith instead of empirical evidence. When, of course, that's not true. There are, there are plenty of scientists that, that, yeah, and well, I think Kern does kind of balance that out a little bit because he's yeah. not—he's not saying he hears the voice of God, and he's not claiming that the offspring is the baby Jesus, as <laughs> as Krieger points out. It's not right. the baby Jesus, right? Well, Sparks goes to the uh, you know the lab where the offspring's being held, and and you know, does he know? I mean, that he's just going to be able to conjure up Katie. Um, I think so. Or does he just go in there to? meditate so to speak so you think he does know well first of all he had just come from talking to molly and molly said you better get on your knees every night and beg for forgiveness and he did that's exactly what he did he went to the what do you call that the box (laughs) that the entity is in and asks or basically tells his daughter that he's sorry and of course he gets interrupted by the code black, but that's what he's doing down there. And I think the later conversation between Yasumoto and Sparks makes you realize that Sparks has a little bit of a screw loose as to what he thinks he can accomplish with the offspring. He thinks he can almost resurrect Katie. Well, see, and that's what I started thinking. I mean, does he feel that the baby is the reincarnation, so to speak, of Katie? Well, I think he just thinks it can bring it, bring her back. Okay. Even if it's just an illusion, he almost is satisfied with being able to see her in any form. Yeah. But, but obviously maybe wants a little more than that. Right. But that actually is where it comes into play. I mentioned earlier that it's kind of tough to figure out where does one episode end and the next one start. But what we've done here is we're actually now going to go back to Ethan's transformation and talk about how it develops even more in the second half, the second hour. And that kind of opens up with a little surprise for us, Dave. Julie's at home reading an article on her mirror about dark matter. Yes. <laughs> nice little tribute for the podcast. Well, yeah. I mean, clearly uh, <laughs> we're, we're big in, the, uh, in 2019 or whatever it is. Oh, that's one thing I didn't actually mention in the opening show news that Mickey Fisher actually did admit on Twitter that he has listened to a couple of our podcasts and and thinks we've uh, got a lot of good ideas. So that was a nice little compliment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the, the one question I have, you know, look, obviously we, we talked a little bit about John trying to access Ethan's core and having his access denied. And, and, you know, you mentioned Julie and he, and, and John thinks Julie reset the password and didn't tell him, which is of course uh, not true. But my question is, does Ethan know he's being remotely accessed? I don't know. See, because my theory is actually, and again, you talk about a lot of our predictions are not going to be our official predictions, but one of my predictions is that the the entity is doing all this to Ethan. The offspring is accelerating his learning. 
I think there's more to the bird tie-in. We saw the birds signaling to Molly, and of course we remember Ethan's fascination with birds earlier. Perhaps he's having some kind of contact with the offspring, and it's what's locking them out. Well, you just said about ex- him accelerating his learning, and, and we've already heard them say about the offspring accelerating its growth. Oh, right, right. So th- I think the two could be tied in together, and we're seeing a convergence of the two separate storylines. Yeah. But Julie is super offended by John's blaming her. <laughs> yeah, well, I like, uh, you know, he, he apologizes, and she says, for for what, thinking I went behind your back, or uh, the fact that you barged into my apartment? He's like, ah, take your pick. Well, but, and that's why he says, are you alone? Because he just realized, oh, I forgot to ask. Here you are in your pajamas. Right. And are you alone? <laughs> Yeah. And you know what? At first, I think I took it the wrong way. Not that anything untoward between the two of them, almost as if he was like, uh, I don't know, even like a father figure when, yeah, what you just, I think we're implying is he just, oh, I'm sorry, I interrupted something. Yeah. He just realized that he may have barged in, but she is rightfully offended because of course she's been trying all along to say that she believes in the project and for her to realize that he actually believes she's capable of that kind of subterfuge is offensive to her. Yeah. All right. Well, the bike has obviously been, uh, you know, a a fairly important uh, object in this episode. Ethan takes his bike. He rides to the park. Of course he doesn't tell anybody. And, and you well, I was on the one hand surprised that Ethan or the offspring didn't disable his GPS. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. But John obviously is able to find him. But before that happens, we've got the two delinquents that are blowing up. Uh, uh, I guess it's a sweep sweeper robot. Some kind of park service bot. Yes. So Whipper and Dobby, uh, <laughs> li- li- literary reference there. Uh, yeah. I've been I've been uh, hanging around Emily too much. Um, so, oh, is that your bike? Yeah. Uh, give it to us. <laughs> yeah. But obviously, there's so much more to that scene and so much more than, you know, when they push him down and we get the little Terminator-esque look with the, you know, his skin torn. Very deliberate, very deliberate. Revealing his exoskeleton. But that wasn't what was so important in that scene. It was that connection he makes to the machine, the sweeping bot. Yeah, he's starting to get a bit philosophical. We talked about more in heaven and earth than is dreamt of in your philosophy. Ethan is developing a philosophy of his own and the meaning of life and all that stuff. Well, right. And if I'm a machine, which he knows he is, and my father slash creator says that I'm every much, every bit of individual as a human being, then what's to say this robot in the park isn't the same. Or that he couldn't be treated the same way as right. this low, lower form of, of, uh, technology because yeah. he just came from that conversation between the Japanese girls where they just wanted to dress up their female humanic. Yeah. And then John wants to leave and Ethan insists on taking the robot with them. And, and, you know, eventually they, obviously they do take it. And that's really, I think a meaningful scene. Yeah. It really speaks to what Ethan is feeling without coming right out and beating us over the head with it. Yeah. It's yeah. Perf- very subtle and, and very uh, well done. Yeah. Now, when they're back at the lab and Julie's repairing him, he he brings up that idea that if he had been stronger, he could have taken care of himself. And it kind of even harkens back to a few episodes back when when Charlie shows him 
I guess, his new arm when when they're going to give him a bigger, more mature body, I guess. Yeah, and doesn't that seem a little scary to you? It does. That, I that mean, Ethan well, wants to become stronger. That here, here's the beginning of Skynet. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and again, I just think they're doing it brilliantly, the way they're tying all this together. And, and you know, I mean, certainly we speculate on how it's going to tie together. but And it's realistic, the development as it would come from a child of a robot takeover. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, when she tells him, Julie, that is, that that, you know, I think that robot is beyond repair. He's not going to be able to perform his function anymore. Well, what's my function? Love that line. Oh, but what about her response? Even better. Yeah, she she realizes how deep that statement is and how significant it is coming from Ethan. What did she say, though? Well, she says, we created you so you'd be able to find your own purpose, your own function. And doesn't that almost speak to maybe why we were created? Yes. Depending on what you believe? <laughs> yes, of course. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, and, and then again, John's concerned. And Julie just figures we got what we set out to create. Why are you concerned? You should be excited like Charlie is. And like John used to be, to be honest. Yeah. What the heck happened to you, John? <laughs> well, you wonder how much of what's going on in Molly's world is bleeding over into this world. And, you know. Well, and also, that's definitely true. But I think what we're also seeing is that John's perfectly happy for Ethan to develop however he wants, as long as John has control over it. Well, good point. He doesn't want anyone else. But right. once he loses control, then he sees the real danger, so to speak. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's almost, it goes back to that, that first episode, which we now, I think, can honestly say was a flippant response to Femi Dodd about yeah, yeah. not being able to control. Why would we want to? Yeah. Did you put in any uh, fail safes? No. <laughs> well, now you wish you did. Yeah. So, well, we're back to uh, our triumvirate of Molly, Krieger, and Kern. And they're at Molly's. Kern tells her the truth about the baby and that it's growing at an abnormally exponential rate, which I, I mentioned a, a few minutes ago. And I certainly think, like we said, that there's probably a connection. Yeah. And we mentioned also that Krieger feels the need to point out to Molly I know what you're thinking. You're not its mother. You were its host. Right. And I'm like, right on, Krager. But then Kern thinks that the entity chose her for a reason is, and is trying to communicate with her, communicate through her. And I think there's evidence for that, specifically the birds forming the circles. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, it kind of just speaks to what is the motivation of the entity? Krager sees it as evil or negative. Uh, Kern, I think, is... You know, I think he sees it as positive, you know, sort of. Well, it's. I think it's more, I think there's one statement that clarifies that. He says, if you lock someone in a box who doesn't belong there, he's got a lot to say when you finally let him out. Yes. So Kern basically understands why the entity would react to its treatment and not just say, oh, it's treating you like a host. Krager's just basically saying, you know, we need to get rid of this thing. It's evil and, and having no sympathy what, whatsoever for it, whereas Kern kind of understands a little right. bit more. Right. And of course, Krieger just thinks he's nuts, uh, you know, almost like a, a religious zealot to a certain extent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that may come from his history with his father, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Now, I assume we're, we're led to believe that was Yasumoto 
going through another one of these treatments because we, you know, it's yeah. obviously a, an adult male. Then we see the vacuums out there squeegeeing off the goo. And then it, it just fast forwards to uh, him talking to Sparks and Sparks telling him that Molly has breached Claypool and thinks the operation is at risk. And, and, and again, here we got, we've got the, the flip again in that uh, Yasumoto wants to protect Molly when Sparks is ready to eliminate her. Yeah. And I, I thought that was interesting because Yasumoto has a very different philosophy and we've been talking about philosophy quite a bit than Sparks too. And we, I guess we kind of figured they were always on the same page, but definitely not. Yeah. Uh, and the other interesting thing that comes out of their conversation is that even though Sparks thinks Molly's a viable threat to the offspring, Yasumoto thinks she's safe because, as he says, she's its mother. So now we're back to, okay, was she the host or is she really its mother? So, you yeah. know, we, we don't know the answer to that yet. So Yasumoto is more like Kern and perhaps Sparks is more like Krieger in that sense. Um, but Yasumoto does make the correlation and confirms that the substance that he's using to prolong his life was found in the same location as the entity. And he points out that that can't be a coincidence. So we're going to have to wait and see perhaps how the offspring ties in with the meteor substance right? or asteroid substance. Right. Exactly. He gives the order to relocate the offspring to the contingency site, but Molly Woods is not to be harmed. And you hear that sparks. (laughs) Yeah. Well, clearly he didn't hear it. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's why it really comes full circle with John continually throughout both episodes, telling Molly, take the Aruna file to the ISEA, blow the whistle on this thing. They can't all be in on it, John says. They, the whole board of ISEA can't be on, in on it. But if Sparks tries to cover it up, he points out to Molly, it'll be over and then we'll all be safe. So the fact that Molly is being so trusting of her own instincts, and also of Kern, by the way, I was very appreciative that Krieger told Kern, this whole switching side thing seems rather convenient. Yes. <laughs> so I'm glad that we actually have, like you said, the triumvirate. They they have nice checks and balances in play. But who's got the checks and balances on Sparks? Obviously not Yasumoto. And wouldn't you, th- wouldn't you think that Yasumoto would be able to control Sparks in this manner and, and not have him go off on his own like that? I think with Molly and John, some of these things we've said about them really does boil down to hubris. But I don't think so in Sparks' case. I just think he's just off the rails at oh, this point. he's desperate. You know, he, he's not really thinking clearly because, dude, you're not going to win this power struggle with Yasumoto. Exactly. And that's going to come into my prediction later on. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, uh, you know, like you said, Molly's planning to take what she has to ISEA and Kern stops her because he's found out that they're moving the offspring. So, you know, so that there was no reason for her to have to do that. He's got a plan that they're basically going to hijack the offspring, which seems like it would be pretty difficult well kern is an essential an essential ingredient in this and it's a good thing that he came over to their side because they never would have made it past any layers of security without his help right but he does reveal to molly that sparks ordered him to kill her yeah and and what a shock because even as shocked as Yasumoto might be that sparks is going against his orders we're surprised from the standpoint of 
he was protecting her not four episodes ago. Yeah, and uh, so I don't know, but that's a bit of a switch. <laughs> well, well, talking about I don't know. I mean, the the next scene, you know, the whole incubator developing the leak. A lot of that was pretty fuzzy to me. Yeah, what is going on? Why right. is the is the offspring doing it on purpose where it's fogging its containment so that somebody will come in and it can grab it and stick it and substitute itself somehow? Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, you know. I'm not even sure what happened there. Did the offspring escape? <laughs> what happened? Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's this cloud that appears to be generating on its own from inside the chamber. Um, <laughs> like in that previous episode, uh, yeah, go in there, go in there and take your mask off and let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah. You know, Sparks just tells Dr. Davis, go, go in there and see what's going on. <laughs> um, and Kern wants to scrub the mission since the offspring is not going to be moved, but Molly insists on going in anyway. And, uh, you know. Yeah, I, this was this is the only part of the the episode I had trouble with. Right. Because she yeah. is just going down in that elevator. What do Krieger and Molly expect to have when they get down to the bottom of that elevator? Right. And it's like Kern can get you in and get the elevator working and disable some security measures, but there's still going to be a bunch of guys with guns. Right. Anyway, well, they go, they go on with their abbreviated plan. Their, I, I guess their alternate plan. And they Kern tells sparks that Molly woods has been taken care of. Well, cause at this point, Kern still has sparks trust. Sparks right. does not know that Kern is a turncoat. Right. Right. And I don't think there's anything to make us think that it wasn't the offspring that made the guards turn on each other. Oh yeah. And shoot themselves. Right. And this is what is so funny about Molly's plan. That here here's all these guys with guns and if the offspring hadn't intervened on your behalf, yeah. you'd have been toast. Right. But then it then begs the question if the offspring has this kind of power, is it really just staying in its containment facility just because it feels like it. It's chilling out. <laughs> yeah. I mean I don't know, you know. It's certainly not contained. It certainly can go beyond its box. Right. And then Krieger shoots holes in it. (laughs) Come on, Krieger. Well, because he thinks that it's uh, something that required a host. It needs to be killed. He doesn't care that Kern and Molly have questions about what it's doing and and why it's trying to communicate with Molly. He just wants to get rid of it. Yeah, yeah. But... uh... He was a little late because inside was one of the scientists wearing a hazmat suit. Yeah. And this is where I'm like, okay, does that mean that the entity is somewhere else now? Where's the little embryo? I think it does indeed. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, and then in the the final scene, Sparks encounters Molly, tells her he didn't want it to end like this. And I think the big question of this final scene is, who does Sparks shoot? I mean, it appears as if he shoots Molly. Mm-hmm. She falls to the ground. Then as he's looking at her, clearly, you know, realizing that he shot this woman that was like a daughter to him, she turns into his daughter. Yeah. And then she is standing up and talking to him. And then the question, we, like you said, before we went on the air, you don't think she, he shot anybody. No. And this lends credence to the theory that the, offspring has escaped because now just picture the what's the lab assistant's name the the one that created the filter number five let's pr- just picture that over this scene what you're going to probably see is a bunch of streaming energy going around this hallway 
it's now no longer in the incubator. I don't know if it still requires the human embryo and where that physical presence is, but it's out here messing with uh, Sparks as well and giving him those same hallucinations and brain or abnormalities and all the rest. Yeah. So he shot nothing. Okay. And I think you're right. But what did Katie say at the last bit? Dad, he needs our help. Yeah. Presumably she's talking about the offspring, but is she going to be persuasive and get Sparks to uh, (laughs) help out the offspring? We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Um, All right. So we got a lot of questions that came up in this episode. Who funded Derek Pierce's lifestyle? Well, isn't it Claypool? I uh, okay and who's <laughs> and then like you said uh, earlier who's Claypool. So re- regardless it, it, again is there somebody above Yasumoto? I think not. I think that's the the top of the chain. <laughs> okay. Um is Ethan lying about not knowing the origin of his newfound abilities? Yeah, and and so he's exceeding his programming. How much does he realize he's doing that? Is he responsible for it or is something else responsible for it? Yeah. I think the latter. Yeah. Now, what and where is ISEA mining? I mean, clearly they're, you know, some of this mining is for what Yasumoto needs to prolong his life, but what else are they mining? And, and- I think it's the asteroid belt, probably. Okay. And just getting ore from out there, because there's like tons of, you know, precious metals out there just waiting for the taking okay. as long as we get the technology to do it. But how long have they been doing it? My question is, how long has this been going on? How old? Because the Russians have been working on the asteroid goo for like 10 years, they said, right? Yep, yes. So. How old is Yasumoto? Yeah. Um, now, is there a connection between Gordon Kern and his father and, 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 you know, what each of them has seen? Probably at the very least, it speaks to Gordon Kern's character, yeah. if nothing else. We also want to know, is Femi Dodd in charge of Odin's rebel group or is she just a member? Probably the first. <laughs> Um, does Sparks think he's actually seeing his daughter or, or does he understand that it's the offspring that's generating this image? And even if he understands that, he apparently is okay with it. Or does he think he can get it to go further and resurrect her somehow? Yeah. And we talked about the big question, whether or not the offspring is feeling protective of Molly and did it send the birds to her to warn her about the SWAT team? Yeah. And what is the relationship? How does it feel about Molly or is it just on a mission of conquest? Yeah. And then finally, one of the questions that that is really fundamental to my need to know whether or not Ethan knows and can sense that John's trying to access his system and is he the one that's deliberately locking John out? Or is it, as you kind of implied, perhaps the offspring that's doing it? Yep, that's my theory. But it could be the other one very easily. It could be him doing it. Yeah. <laughs> but why is John in favor of the governor when he's been denying the Skynet idea all along? This seems like a complete switch on his part. Yeah. And I think it might just be, like we said, I think I might have answered my own question there by explaining that once he lost personal control, that's when he made, had his awakening about that. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't we move on to predictions? You want to go first on this one? I'll go first. I, you know, I had a difficult time. I mean, there are a lot of predictions that I think were pretty straightforward and would be easy. I think on the one hand that it's pretty obvious that Yasumoto has the offspring. Oh, okay. But I think 
what's going to happen is that the offspring is going to call to Molly to save it. How did he acquire it? Well, I I don't know. I mean, you know, <laughs> clearly somebody took the offspring and replaced the offspring with that that guy in the hazmat suit. I think the offspring did that though. Oh, but you, you did. Oh, okay. The, it, it escaped itself. But you think Yasumoto might have been instrumental in? Yes, in I that? think. Yeah, I think Yasumoto has the offspring, and I think the offspring is going to somehow call to Molly to save it. I like it, even though it really doesn't need saving per se. I think it could save itself, but it wants her involvement. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, my prediction uh, has to do with Sparks's betrayal of Yasumoto or going against his orders, and I think, like we said, Sparks has gone off the deep end. He's gone way beyond the scope of even what he originally wanted, especially with regard to Molly. He, he's been so protective of her and now he just has lost it. And so I think that Sparks will be killed by the end of the season. And I thought that's not bold enough. So I'm going to say, I think it's going to be at Yasumoto's behest that Yasumoto will maybe even be standing over his dying form or something like that. Because I don't think Sparks is going to last past the, disagreement of Yasumoto, the disagreement from Kern and everyone else, he's just taken it too far. What do you think? Uh, you know, it's like, hasn't he ever seen the Godfather? <laughs> All right. Well, let's hear from our listeners in our dark matter chatter segment. And our first email comes from regular contributor, Christopher. Christopher says, Gezis another listener, may be on to something. Ethan does seem to have a secret self in the background. His dreams and his waking at random hours suggest he's got a subconscious that he doesn't control. The more I see of him, the more human he feels to me. In fact, he's actually teaching John how to be more human. The bike moment was, I think, John's first real proud dad moment, followed by an actual fatherly fear when Ethan rode out of sight. His denying access to John and his defiant behavior all felt normal. Rebelling a bit against parents is a very human thing to do, but his touching hug of John, oh yeah, we didn't mention this, his touching hug of John near the end really sealed it. Yeah, good point. Yeah, that's true. Ethan may turn out to be the most empathetic and human character on this show. Wow. You know what? We should highlight that. Yeah, I think it'll come into play later, and I'm glad that you mentioned that since we forgot to about Ethan's uh, empathy. Uh, Christopher's favorite line has to be from Krieger. I'm sorry. It made me flush my mother into space. It ain't the baby Jesus. <laughs> Definitely a good one. Yeah. And Christopher got a point along with me. I guess I, I didn't brag about the fact that I was correct about Odin, Dave, that, oh, he, yeah. that he was a member of a third faction and was anti-tech as well. So I was pretty specifically on point. But Christopher also had predicted that there would be a third faction against tech and AI revealed. And Odin is a part. But the shocker for Christopher and for us was that Femi Dodd was involved. I didn't see her coming. Christopher's prediction is that Sparks appears that he may be enlisted to help the alien, but I think in the end, he's going to be blinded by the image of his daughter and used in a way that he didn't expect or want. So once again, Christopher's prediction is very much in line with mine, although he just thinks that he's going to be used and I think he's going to be axed. <laughs> You know, what if Yasumoto knows what Femi Dodd is doing and it's it's like this conscious relationship they have. I don't know what sense it makes, but 
Well, I think it's awfully coincidental that Yasumoto was urged by Sparks to stay close to Molly by funding the Humanix project. And yet, ooh, suddenly, oh, I want to place my consciousness in the neural net of an android. I mean, that's a bit coincidental. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, you're right. He might, might know a lot more than we think. Yeah. All right. And then Alex from the UK uh, wrote in, so things took a sudden twist this week. Kern actually siding with Molly and Krieger. That's not to say I don't think we saw this coming, but he seemed like the no funny business type of guy to start with. It seems like him and Sparks have completely swapped roles, and Yasumoto really is the piece of dirt we all expected then, eh? Seems like things are going to ramp up next week. Uh, I didn't watch the previews. I Nor I. Okay. <laughs> uh, I wonder if Ethan is going to play a pivotal role in the story now that his development has progressed and John has no way of stopping it. I have a sneaky suspicion, though, that his role could possibly end up similar to a character in Torchwood, Children of Earth. Not sure if you've seen it all, where a child was vital in the final climax, but for the worse. And yeah, I definitely saw it. Yeah. Is he right about that? Because I didn't. Yeah. I mean, I certainly can see the connection. Absolutely. All right, Alex. Thanks for that. And I did leave a speak pipe message out last week that Brad sent us. So I want to play that now. Because it's still relevant. Thankfully, a lot of these theories that come out can be placed pretty much anywhere in the series, as long as it's before the conclusion. So let's hear from Brad now. Hey, Dave and Mike. This is Brad in Chicago calling for Extent. Hey, I've got another crazy theory. What if, since they like to reference a lot of old sci-fi tropes, one thing that we've seen in previous sci-fi shows is that there's aliens already on Earth. So what if the people in the space agency or even the head of the corporation are actually aliens and they're trying to connect back to their aliens in space? Maybe they've been here a while. Um, I know it sounds kind of exile-ish, but I think it's maybe something that they're, uh, that someone has to consider. So anyways, love the podcast and, uh, Hopefully, we'll see what uh, what happens. So, what do you think about aliens inhabiting people on Earth, perhaps for some time? Well, I, I certainly think it's viable. I mean, clearly, there is an alien entity that has a consciousness and can tap into our consciousness. So, yeah, I think it's certainly a, a reasonable possibility. Yeah, I guess the only thing that's a little bit different about that is that although it can manipulate their minds and make them do things, we haven't seen it completely inhabit another person like take it over a possession type thing but i still like it. it it fits with the facts that we have yeah so thanks for that brad but that's actually all we have some people actually did end up taking a break from from sending in feedback and uh it didn't run too long and we'll probably do the same thing next week because there is a, another two hour uh, episode coming up next week but that's it for this edition of the dark matter extant podcast keep up with show news and fan interaction which there's plenty of on twitter by following us at dark matter gsm as well as other golden spiral media podcasts by following gsm podcasts and mike and i'll be back next week with our discussion of episodes 9 and 10 of extant entitled care and feeding and a pack of cards. But in the meantime, head on over to goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback to share your thoughts. You can write a message, record a comment using your computer's microphone, or call 304-837-2278. But remember, once again, keep it short for this double episode, but definitely 
send us your feedback. Yeah, I think we've proven that we can still keep it to a normal length, and I'll be reporting from DragonCon next week, and hopefully be able to record our podcast on the road. We'll see what happens there. But if you've enjoyed this episode of Dark Matter, please consider rating and reviewing us in iTunes. I want to give a brief shout-out to Quinlan's Mamma Mia!, who gave us a very kind five-star review. So please uh, follow their example, and we'll talk to you next weekend.